From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up on this Monday edition. We need to have witnesses and documentation, and if we don't, that is a cover-up. That was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi yesterday on This Week with George Stephanopoulos, speaking of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Oklahoma Senator James Lankford is here on impeachment as it is expected to go to the Senate this week. We'll also discuss the importance of National Religious Freedom Day that takes place this Thursday and also how refugee resettlement policies are being influenced by the faith of governors around the country. Also, the House is advancing a resolution to support the Iranian protesters in the wake of the admission by Iranian leadership that they shot down the Ukrainian airplane, killing all 176 passengers aboard, including Many Iranians. I'll talk with Congressman Ted Yoho of Florida, who sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee. And it is that time of year as state legislatures are assembling around the country. In fact, 36 state legislatures will start their meetings this month. And many are advancing some very positive pro-life, pro-family pro-religious liberty legislation. Kena Gonzalez, director of our state and local affairs, joins me with the details about what might be happening in your state and what you can do to help out. Also, does public policy really matter? As Christians, should we be concerned about the policies that our state or nation adopts? And how can the Bible inform our public policy positions. David Clawson, FRC's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview, is here for that conversation. A, a, by the way, great event this weekend in Baton Rouge for our Stand Courageous Men's Conference, the first one of 2020. A lot of Washington Watch listeners in the Baton Rouge area were there. Our thanks to uh, Dr. David uh, Goza and the Jefferson Baptist uh, Church for hosting us. And uh, men, there is more to come. In fact, January the 24th and 25th, we'll be in Kernersville, North Carolina for our Stand Courageous Conference there. And in uh, Pensacola, Florida, January the 31st and February the 1st. So busy month, but uh, if you're in one of those areas, based on the feedback and observations that uh, I had, you definitely want to be there. To find out more how you can join men across the country in Standing Courageous, Go to TonyPerkins.com and uh, follow the links over to Stand Courageous. It's under the episode resources and uh, register today. Again, that's uh, January 24th and 25th in Kernersville, North Carolina, and January 31st, February 1st in Pensacola, Florida. Well, as I uh, mentioned at the top of the program, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was on ABC's This Week with George Stephanopoulos yesterday, attacking the Senate resolution designed to force her to transmit the articles of impeachment. This is what she had to say. He signed on on Thursday to a resolution to dismiss the case. The dismissing is a cover-up. Dismissing is a cover-up. If they want to go that route again, the senators who are thinking now about voting for witnesses or not, they will have to be accountable. Joining me now with more is Senator James Langford from Oklahoma, who serves on the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee, the Finance Committee, the Appropriations Committee, and the Indian Affairs Committee. He also leads out on a number of religious freedom issues as he uh, chairs the Values Action Team there in the Senate. Senator Langford, welcome back to Washington Watch. Very glad to be able to be with you again, Tony. 
Well, let's talk about that cover-up that's taking place in the Senate. Well, what's that all about? I'm sure that is a poll-tested question that they've used in that statement to say, but that's that's an absurd accusation to say uh, if you don't do the trial exactly as the House wants you to do the trial, then it's a cover-up. You have to do it our way. Certainly, as a senator, there are lots of things I would have done very differently uh, for the House impeachment process, but I can't reach over to the House and tell them how to do it. For instance, the president never had an opportunity to be able to bring his own witnesses, never had an opportunity to tell his side of the story. Uh, it was only one side of the story the whole time uh, in the House, and then now they're demanding that the Senate has to do it also the same way that the House did it as well. The, the Senate is going to use the exact same process that was done in 1999 uh, for the Clinton trial, which was agreed upon 100 to nothing uh, during that. So it's not a partisan process. Uh, but we're not going to do it the way Nancy Pelosi wants. We're going to do it in a way that has been fair and has been done in the past. And one thing about the Senate, and now a lot of people will get frustrated with the Senate. You were in the House before you went over to the Senate. The Senate does move a lot slower. But precedent means a lot in the Senate. Things don't change uh, very often in the Senate. So that's one of the first I guess the first thing that uh, you do when you get something that you know you haven't done for 20 years, you look back on what you did 20 years ago. Correct. That, see it. In, yep. See, see what was done fair in the past. And the way that it was set up in the Clinton trial we think is a pretty fair way to do it. The House, their managers will have uh, 24 hours to be able to make their side of the argument. Uh, the president then will, for the first time, be given an opportunity to make his side of the argument, which he was not allowed to at all in the House. The president will be given equal time, and then after that, senators will be able to ask any question that they want to be able to ask, and there will be 16 hours of floor time uh, reserved uh, for senators, and we'll, we'll actually physically write down the questions, give them to the chief justice, and the chief justice will then get those questions to each side, the House and the president, and they'll answer questions, and then we'll make a decision on what to do from there. But by that time, we've heard 24 hours from the House, we've heard 24 hours from the president, we've heard 16 hours of questioning time. We'll make a decision at that point if we need additional witnesses uh, during the Clinton trial, uh, the, that Senate in 1999 determined, yes, we needed some additional witnesses, but they called witnesses from that the House had already called. They weren't calling new people. Uh, they weren't going and chasing down additional things. Uh, they were recalling people that the House had called. So I would expect, even if we do choose to do witnesses, we'll be calling some of the people the House has already done. This is not a fishing expedition. This is a response to what the House has determined uh, was the appropriate amount of evidence. And when the House said we had enough evidence to impeach the president, we should respond to that evidence they sent over and not go fishing for more something. Senator Langford, it's it's my observation, and I'm trying to be uh, objective in this and not, um, you know, see this from through a partisan lens. But it appears to me that Nancy Pelosi and the way they handled this, trying to move this thing through rapidly, that they sent it over to the Senate and it's full of holes and they're trying to fill in the holes now by dictating how the Senate should handle it. Yeah, there are lots of witnesses that the House just never chose to go get. Uh, John Bolton is a classic example of that. John, the House called John Bolton. The White House said, hey, there's private conversations the president has with John Bolton that that's under executive privilege. John Bolton went immediately to the court and said the House has asked one thing. The White House asked another. Would you clarify this for us? Well, when John Bolton went to the court to ask for clarification, the House then immediately pulled their request and said, never mind. 
because that would take about two months to get an answer. That's what happened during the Clinton time period. President Clinton had several conversations with other people that said this is this is privileged uh, conversation with the White House. They would go to the court, take about two weeks to be able to get it done. But this this House of Representatives wasn't going to take that amount of time, whether it be two weeks or two months. They're going to just speed through as fast as they possibly could. To give you an example, when the, President Clinton and all those documents were sent over from the House to the Senate for the trial, there were 18 boxes of information. The House is sending us over one notebook. That's all they have. They have one notebook. The Clinton trial was 18 boxes of information. So they didn't do very much background. They didn't talk to very many witnesses. They didn't go through the legal process. But now they're demanding that the Senate basically start all over again and do their homework for them. That's not how it works. Constitutionally, the House does an impeachment, and the Senate just responds to what the House sends. We don't try to impeach and do the trial as well. Uh, We're set up constitutionally to respond to what they send. What's the time frame we're looking at here? When do we anticipate something uh, coming over from the House? We expect the Speaker to send over their managers in the next couple of days. Uh, once that has done, they, at this point, they still haven't chosen all their managers. Uh, once they send over, here's who their managers are going to be, and they, they send over the official documents. Then it's a couple of days after that. Uh, then the actual trial begins. There will be a swearing in, a lot of formalities and details that you go through at the very beginning of this very formal, very archaic process, and then we'll begin. So the earliest we could begin would be late on Thursday or Friday or Saturday. Uh, There may be a delay to be able to start after Martin Luther King Jr. Day uh, to actually begin the process, but the earliest we could possibly begin would be late Thursday or Friday. And once we begin, it is six days a week. We'll go Monday through Saturday for the trial. What do you expect to be the outcome? Well, I can't prejudge what the outcome is, but as I'm looking at the quote-unquote evidence that the House has sent us, there's nothing compelling here that the House is sending us to say that's so dramatic that a president should be removed from office. This is disagreement over what words meant in a phone call, Uh, and as odd as it sounds, it seems like the uh, Democrats in the House trust the Ayatollah and his intentions more than they trust the President of the United States and his intentions on a phone call. And so it just seems very odd uh, that this is all about a phone call and what did the President mean by that, because clearly the President didn't carry out any political activities. There was no action from the State Department to put leverage on Ukraine. There was the, all the follow-up meetings that happened, and there were four follow-up meetings after that phone call. None of them brought up anything with Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or any of the other investigations. There was no additional follow-up. So what the Democrats in the House are trying to say now is in that phone call, the president intended to do something he didn't actually do, but because he intended to, we should remove him from office. Uh, and that, unless they've got additional information, that, that seems like a very shaky grounds mm-hmm. uh, to not only bring impeachment from the House, but certainly not removal from office. You're listening to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. Oklahoma Senator James Lankford, my guest uh, in this first segment. Uh, James, I want to I want to talk about the uh, Religious Freedom Day, National Religious Freedom yeah. Day, which comes up this Thursday, which is something you and I talk about a lot. You you spearhead a number of those issues. In fact, I just ran into the studio after chairing the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom today. But 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 I I, I want to get to another policy issue and before we run out of time, and that is something that you and I have also spent a lot of time talking about, and something we agree upon. 
and it's related to religious freedom. We have refugees uh, coming into this country, uh, many of them religious refugees, looking for a, a place to come. The Obama administration didn't do very good vetting. The Trump administration came in. Uh, started uh, extreme vetting, which I support. I know you support. But they almost cut off all the numbers, uh, letting nobody come in. We pushed back on that. And many Republican governors, including your governor, Governor Tennessee, Bill Lee, all saying, no, we're going to accept these refugees. What do you say to that? I, I agree with my governor in that role. You know, as you mentioned before, the Religious Freedom Day that's coming up is a recognition going all the way back to when religious liberty was declared in the Virginia Declaration uh, back in the 1700s that we are a nation that's going to be founded on a different kind of principle, that we're going to honor people of faith to be able to not only have a faith of their choosing, but to be able to live that faith out or to be able to have no faith at all. And many of the refugees that are fleeing from around the world are fleeing religious persecution in particular and running from places around the world where they cannot survive based on their faith, uh, whether that be Kurds, and I've had a lot of folks that have said we should stand with the Kurds. Uh, many of these refugees are fleeing that are Kurdish refugees that are Christians there uh, that aren't surviving, or they're Yazidis, or they're their other faiths. Uh, and so America as a beacon, a place uh, where we honor religious liberty, we should continue to be able to practice that as well in receiving refugees, especially those fleeing religious persecution. That's part of the example, I believe. And it's also something I I think our faith would lead us to be a place of refuge. Now, all for the extreme vetting to make sure the people want to come here and be a part of America, not tear America apart. But we've got to keep that door open. Absolutely, we can and we should. All right, Senator James Lankford, as always, great to talk with you, my friend. Uh, Talk to you real soon. Take care. Find out more, go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. Obviously, that's a conversation we're going to have uh, more of because I know there's some disagreement in the conservative community, but uh, we're going to unpack that because there is a place for um, allowing people, the right people, to come in. All right, don't go away. Ted Yoho, next. Join FRC Live via webcast for the 15th annual Pro-LifeCon Digital Action Summit. On January 24th from FRC's headquarters in Washington, you'll hear from political leaders, bloggers, journalists, and activists who will share how they view social media and other digital tools to further the pro-life message. You'll be empowered to better reach your own communities by learning best practices from those who are at the cutting edge of the digital pro-life movement. Tune in Friday, January 24th at 8 a.m. at ProLifeCon.com. We all need to be lectured sometimes. Family Research Council's new podcast features selected talks by top thinkers from the archives of the FRC Speaker Series. Our podcast podium takes on tough issues like religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture, all from a biblical worldview. Listen with us to the lecture, then stick around afterward as we break down the content. The Lecture Me podcast is available wherever podcasts are found. Or visit FRC.org slash podcasts. Ever hear the term toxic masculinity? Hello, this is Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council. Masculinity is under attack in our culture. The American Psychological Association released guidelines declaring traditional masculinity ideology as harmful. Brown University and Ivy League School offered a course, Unlearning Toxic Masculinity, explaining that rigid definitions of masculinity are toxic to men's health. In a University of Texas class, Masculine UT treated masculinity as if it were a mental health crisis. 
Thankfully, the culture does not have the last word on true masculinity. God does. Our Stand Courageous Men's Conferences offer biblical solutions to the crisis of manhood. We seek to help men develop character, cultivate habits, build relationships, and make commitments that will move them closer to God's design. Check out StandCourageous.com for an event in your area. That's StandCourageous.com. What other trip? Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, it is uh, at T Perkins. All right. Uh, Iran's government has denied reports that security forces fired live ammunition at protesters in Tehran and accused President Trump of shedding, quote unquote, crocodile, crocodile tears with his message of support for the demonstrators. Now, videos reportedly show blood on the ground after claims that protesters were hit with live rounds in Tehran two days after Mr. Trump warned the Islamic Republic's leaders not to kill their protesters. Now, this is uh, protesters have been denouncing their government's belated admission that uh, an Iranian missile unintentionally shot down a Ukrainian passenger jet last week, killing all 176 people aboard. Now, we've seen protests going on in Iran for some time. And this is, you've heard this from the administration. I think this is important to, to, to note that while Iran is a, you know, bad place in terms of a bad government, the people are not necessarily in line with the government. In fact, that's what's behind the protest. You have this oppressive regime that is controlling the government, and oftentimes by by force, by intimidation. In fact, uh, the the same thing we see unfolding in Iraq, the protest against the government there. The protesters are protesting, in large part, Iran's influence over Iraqi policies in government. And so the only way they maintain the control is by force, by intimidation. In fact, um, you know, I've not been able to substantiate these reports, but I've spoken to people uh, that what's been happening in Iraq since... Uh, Solanami was taken out and the, uh, you know, we've seen more unrest in Iraq is that they're going after the protesters there, the uh, Iranian linked militias and others and eliminating the protesters. And this is what the president is warning Iran not to do in Iran, not to kill the protesters. But the evidence is that there is violence in the streets. Well, joining me now to talk more about this is uh, Congressman Ted Yoho of Florida, represents the 3rd District, serves on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman Yoho, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, thanks for having me on, Tony. Look forward to it. How significant is this unrest and protest in Iran that's happening right now? How significant is it? Oh, man, this is huge. I mean, this is showing the will of the people again. Um, they, they did this in 2009. Uh, we did not follow through or facilitate uh, in the way that we can without interfering in their politics. 
And it's interesting, Tony, after um, the, the removal of Soleimani, everybody said this is going to unite Iran, or yeah, Iran against the United States. And I said, if it does that, it'll be very short term because there is so much dis dissent in Iran with the way the Ayatollah is running the country that those people in Iran, the Iranian people, and there's a lot of good people, they just want to have a normal country that incorporates into the 21st century in the world. What, what do they need to, I mean, essentially what's going to happen? You're going to have to have a regime change. You're going to have to have a change of government. That's what the people, I think, in Iran are looking for. That's why they're protesting the government. What has to happen to see that come about? No, uh, when, when you said what has to happen, that's exactly what needs to happen. And it needs to happen organically and internally. And we're seeing this in Lebanon. We're seeing this in Iraq, um, where they removed um, the prime minister. And they just said, we want a better way. And when you have an organic moving from the bottom up without foreign interference, um, you're going to get those changes. To make this happen, the Ayatollah, they need to relent or back up and just say, you know what, we're going to step down. Uh, that would be a huge ask for him to do, but that's really what's best for the people of Iran, to have them do it peacefully through a process to where they listen to the people. This appears to be somewhat like a, a second Arab Spring. What can the United States learn from the first go-around that we might have better outcomes this time? I think the thing that we can do is just stay strong with the people that are standing up. I mean, we're seeing it in Hong Kong. We're seeing it in the Xinjiang province of China where uh, there's suppression by the Chinese government and the Communist Party on the Muslim Uyghurs there. They're trying to suppress, Tony, the innate trait that all humans are blessed with, and that is to be self-determining. They want freedom and they want liberty. And I think the thing that we can do best as a nation is America is bigger than a presidency. It's bigger than a Republican and Democratic Party. It is the ideals that America stands for. And that, those ideals are the ones that show people in Hong Kong burning the Chinese flag while waving the American flag. And we've seen that in these other countries. And I think if we stand strong with our principles and stand by people that are willing to risk their life and everything for freedom. I think if they know we're by their side, um, I think that's the best thing we can do. And that would be a significant change from what we saw during the Arab Spring last time. Right. Uh, yeah, well, we've got a whole different um, government in place, and thank God. Um, you know, when again, when people are willing to risk their lives for freedom and liberty, and uh, we're not asking them to be like America, but we're, we're telling them that we'll stand with them to stand up and uphold those ideals that we all believe in. This could be a game changer in the Middle East. It really could be. And, you know, this is not something that's going to go away. The, the Ayatollahs and his regime, they can suppress it. You know, they've already killed over 1,000 people. They did that uh, in multitudes in 2009. But it's not going to go away. Each generation is going to strive to get to this point of, of having the, those freedoms. And we should uh, pray for them and encourage them in that undertaking and effort. Uh, Congressman Ted Yoho, as always, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Sir, have a great night. All right, uh, Congressman Ted Yoho of uh, Florida. It is different. 
and it's it could be a game changer in the Middle East and, and not requiring our military to be there. All right, don't go away. When we come back, Kena Gonzalez, FRC's Director of State and Local Affairs, joins me to talk about model legislation. 36 state legislatures meeting this month. Uh, they begin their annual process and some really good legislation coming up. We're going to talk about it. Don't go away. Tony Perkins, and you're listening to Washington Watch, coming to you from the heart of Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter, it is at T. Perkins. As I mentioned at the top of the program, we had our first Stand Courageous Men's Conference of 2020 this weekend in Baton Rouge, Jefferson Baptist Church. Great turnout, great response, great, uh, just a great time uh, there with the men who joined uh, Friday night and Saturday at Jefferson Baptist Church. Hey, we've got more of these coming. We're going to do uh, be doing almost a dozen of these throughout the course of the year in various parts of the country. Next up, North Carolina, Kernersville, North Carolina, coming up on the 24th, 25th of this month. So uh, next weekend, not this coming weekend, but the following weekend. And then uh, end of the month in Pensacola, Florida. Uh, men, I challenge you, come and join us. Uh, ladies, I would encourage you to encourage your husbands or the uh, the man in your life to attend this. Sons, uh, this is all age groups. Find out more how you can be a part of it. Go to TonyPerkins.com under the episode resources. Click on that, and you can register online. Uh, first responders, get in free. Just give us a call at the 800 number there, and uh, your registration will be uh, covered. All right, state legislatures, and uh, I have uh, a kind of an affinity for state legislatures, having served nearly a decade in the Louisiana legislature. Quite frankly, I actually think that's where the bulk of the work shaping policy in this country happens. The state legislature is kind of a laboratory of public policy ideas. Oftentimes, uh, you will see good policy percolate up and be emulate, emulated at the federal level. Uh, that's how um, uh, we, we saw the uh, welfare reform back uh, probably 20 years ago. Uh, took place, actually longer than that. Uh, came from the states. So um, this month, 36 state legislatures will assemble through uh, the course of the year. We'll have um, almost all of them. You've got a few that meet every other year. You've got um, 46 states in all that will meet this year. Montana, Nevada, North Dakota, and Texas don't convene regular sessions during even number years. Quite frankly, that's a good idea. I think uh, all state legislatures should meet every other year. The reason is this. Uh, last year, for instance, nearly 160,000 state bills were introduced. That's a lot. Uh, we used to have, on average, five to 6,000 would be introduced in Louisiana every year. And, of course, you, not all of them are enacted. About a quarter or less are actually enacted. But you've got to defend certain things. You've got to defeat others. And so um, while there's good things that happen at the state level, it would be better if they didn't meet so much. Uh, but that's another story. I want to focus on the positive policy that's being put forth at the state level uh, in those states that are meeting presently and those that are about to convene, some really good policy initiatives that are advancing faith, family, and freedom. And here to talk about it, Kena Gonzalez, who is the director of our state and local affairs here at the Family Research Council. Kena, welcome 
back to Washington Watch. Thanks so much, Tony. Although I have to say, if you move forward with this idea of meeting every other year, I hope we can get them to stagger so I have something to do. Otherwise, oh, I'll find something for I you. I may to be part time. Uh, I don't think anybody around here thinks that uh, anyone would be uh, letting grass grow under their feet. Uh, but it would. It would. You know, when when anything meets any organization, they have to justify their existence, so they do something. But, that, again, that's a, that's a topic for another day. Let's talk about the good things that are, are percolating good, at the state level. There are good things. It is January, and it is high season, as you noted, in the states. Uh, most state legislatures meet between January and, uh, and April or May. With the exception of Louisiana. We're late coming in. We come in uh, usually in late spring. There, there are a few late bloomers. We like to think of them as uh, having special special place in yeah, our hearts because right. they give us a chance to focus more on the legislation. But I would say that 80 to 85 percent of the legislation that we're going to track this year will be introduced in the next Next few weeks or months, um, and so I wanted to run through, if you don't mind, yeah, let's, a few, let's look a at few some categories of, of great bills. On the um, by, by the way, folks, I'm gonna don't just let your eyes glaze over here because I'm we're gonna we're gonna focus on these measures. What you can do about it if it's coming to your state, and if it's not coming to your state, how you can get it at your state, and then a little bit later in the program, David Clawson's going to talk with me. We're going to talk about why that's important. So pay attention to what Kane is saying. That's right. That's a really good point. People can do more in their states than they realize, and certainly have more effect than they do federally generally as a grassroots activist. We are seeing some good uh, bills move forward to protect the unborn if they are born during a botched abortion. These are born alive acts. We have a federal counterpart. And that's in response. Uh, if you don't mind, this is my program, so I'm going to give some commentary here. But the, the, this is in response to what happened a year ago in New York with Governor Cuomo. That's right. And we're still trying to get a response at the federal level. And we can't get anything done, but yet there are many, many states moving forward addressing the issue. That's true. Uh, House Republicans have been faithful to offer a unanimous consent request to bring this bill to the floor regularly. But uh, so far, the legislative action beyond that is at the state level. I'm very excited to say that both West Virginia and Ohio have uh, very good Born Alive bills. We have a map on our website at frc.org slash pro-life map that will show uh, born alive bills all across the states and will demonstrate West Virginia has no born alive protections today. Ohio has what we consider strong but not the very best, and this, these two bills would bring them up to par with seven states that have top-of-the-line protections for the unborn. We're also uh, looking at 20-week bans uh, on dismemberment abortion, which is dismembering the unborn in the womb to kill them, fetal dignity bills in a couple of states, Defunding Planned Parenthood is already moving in Kentucky, and we're looking for that in other states. Um, and then, of course, we have some bad bills that are moving New York, building on their work of last year to expand mm -hmm. abortion, and Virginia, in particular, moving a number of bad bills, including pro-abortion bills. Well, that, uh, that map at our website, people can take a look at, uh, at that, and that will show them in a quick glance um, exactly. What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreams sexual exploitation, transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. 
A strong case can now be made that China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith, especially Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong. The Chinese Communist Party's movement against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. The Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these human rights and religious freedom violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. That's frc.org slash China. In the U.S., the rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions, but the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org slash chemical abortion. Last year, my brother Josh, a 30... Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. Um, we had a little glitch there on the way out. My uh, my band took a uh, coffee break, so uh, we kept talking. Kena, uh, we, we folks may have lost that last bit as we were discussing the pro-life map that is at TonyPerkins.com, interactive map where right. people can just kind of go to their state and see what protections the unborn have. That's right. We're highlighting there, uh, among other things, the Born Alive Acts that have been passed to protect the unborn who are born during a botched abortion and should have the full rights that anyone has, uh, certainly a born alive baby. And if someone goes to that map, they click on it, like you said, North uh, or West Virginia, and they have no protections. That's right. What do they do? Hopefully they help us contact their legislators and uh, demand those protections. In Ohio and West Virginia, those bills are moving. Um, it's early in the season. We'd like to see that moving in a lot more states as an answer to the abortion radicalism that we saw last fall. And there's some other issues that you've got mo- model legislation that uh, legislators who may be listening to this program can get a copy of that model legislation or just citizens who are concerned about these issues can get this and forward it on to their legislators. That's right. There are two issues in particular I'd like to emphasize. One is the issue, we call it fetal dignity, the dignity of the unborn. After the the David Daleiden videos broke about four years ago, we designed legislation that would prevent the double dipping that Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers are doing by not only charging for the abortion, often charging the taxpayer for the abortion, but then reselling the baby body parts on the market. Market. And we have uh, some excellent bills. Uh, a couple of them are already moving in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. We think they should be moving in a lot more states. Virtually no state, Tony, has full protections against that black market, and we'd like to see that change. The other that I'd like to mention is model legislation that we've just developed uh, in the last uh, couple of months to address the, the growing concern about minors who are being pressured to consider themselves um, transgender boys, considering themselves girls, and girls uh, being pressured to consider themselves boys, and even being pressured into hormone treatment 
and premature surgical alterations that have profound effects on an individual's emotional, psychological, and physical well-being for the rest of their life. Quite a number of states are taking up legislation this session, Tony, to address this issue uh, of, of providing transgender services to minors. And I'm proud to say that FRC is right at the forefront of that. We've developed model legislation that addresses virtually every aspect of that very complicated um, very uh, sensitive issue. We've worked with doctors and policy experts from across the country, and I'm really proud of what we've come up with. I, I want to emphasize that for just a moment for especially policymakers, lawmakers that may be listening, because I know we've got a number that listen around the country. When we put forth model legislation, it, it's not just conceptual legislation that we think would be good. It's legislation that's based on the research, and so we've compiled all of that, and that's available to those lawmakers so that when they would present this, leg- uh, introduce this legislation, they've got that information to back it up. That's right, as well as policy experts from here and elsewhere, and also medical experts who are willing to testify on this issue. It's a very complicated issue, and no legislator should put forward legislation in the, until they are fully comfortable with the case to be made against these uh, against these transgender services for minors. And, uh, and again, folks, you can find out more about this. Go to TonyPerkins.com. In fact, uh, if you're a lawmaker and you would like to get uh, information from Cana, uh, there's a, under episode resources, there's, just click on uh, Cana Gonzalez, and it'll take you to a page. More information about his work as Director of State and Local Affairs here at the Family Research Council and uh, way, a way to contact him to find out more. Um, so what is the most exciting thing, other than what you've just told us, what else is, uh, is really encouraging to see happening as we look out across the landscape of America? Well, you know, Tony, I think it is uh, remarkable. You and I work in public policy so much of our work. Of course, FRC also works with churches and pastors, and I wait for signs of revival that are coming um, to the church and to the nation. And I think in the last two years, we have seen an amazing explosion among people coming out of, in particular, the LGBT lifestyle and publicly talking about how God has transformed their lives. Now, the impetus in many cases are bad state laws in these, quote-unquote, blue states right. that, that ban counseling, talk therapy, and other things that these folks have found so helpful. But what the enemy has intended for evil, God is using for good, and people are coming forward and telling their story in very powerful ways. And at FRC, it's just a privilege to work with these folks and tell their stories. And that is the very reason people want to shut down the conversation That's is right. because I think I read the scripture where it says the truth shall make you free. And uh, and when you speak the truth, it has the impact of... Uh, unshackling those from the deceptive and destructive course of nature. And um, it's, um, it's good. Kana Gonzalez, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us. Always a pleasure. All right. Uh, Kana Gonzalez, Director of our State and Local Affairs. You can find out more. Go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. Uh, a great segue. As Kana was talking about the, the, the religious uh, freedom aspect of this, the revival that we're looking for, the awakening that is taking place in our culture. And, of course, this year, Family Research Council really wanting to uh, fuel that by turning people's attention to the Bible. Um, Two-year, through the Bible, uh, family reading program. Uh, if you've not yet joined us in that, 
jump right in. We're uh, we're still in the book of Genesis. You can. It's a two-year reading program. Takes about fifteen to twenty minutes a day. It's uh, to find out more. Go to TonyPerkins.com. Again, it's under the episode resources. Already getting very positive feedback. In fact, I, I want to do this last week and I forgot. But if you and your family, or you and your family, or and or however you want to say that are part of the reading program, you've already experienced, uh, you know, God at work in your life or in your family. I'd like to hear about it. Email me, Tony at TonyPerkins.com. Tony at TonyPerkins.com. Tell us uh, how this Bible reading plan is already impacting your family and impacting you uh, as we uh, are just getting started in 2020. All right, let's talk about... We talk about policy, talk about the Bible. People say, well, those two things are incompatible. It's interesting. I don't think they're incompatible because those are two things you're not supposed to talk about in polite company. Don't talk about politics or religion. If that were the case, I would never say a word uh, because that's the only two things I really find important. Because, And that's, that's the way the enemy works. He wants you to be silent about the things that are most important. In our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and the transformation that takes place when we come to know him as our Savior and Lord is something we should be shouting from the rooftops. And the policy that flows from our understanding of truth, shaping the culture and leading subsequent generations is just as important. And uh, joining me now to talk about that is David Clawson. He is the Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview here at the Family Research Council. David, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me, Tony. So you, uh, you, you had the benefit of hearing the conversation I had with Kena Gonzalez about these policy uh, initiatives that are being introduced in states across the country. As Christians, why should we be concerned about public policy? That's a great question. We need to be, and I like what you just said about our Bible reading plan, and I've enjoyed it the first couple of weeks in 2020, reading through the Bible every morning. It's impo- you know, something that's jumped out to me is, you know, the Christian worldview is holistic. It speaks to all areas of life, including how we interact with one another, how we interact with the state, how we interact with our friends and neighbors, and every major policy issue uh, that you just touched on with Cana. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about that. Some of those issues, such as marriage and religious liberty, uh, the fact that people are made in the image of God, uh, the Bible speaks very clearly to those issues. Yeah, life, no question. Um, you know, we've talked about that on the program. But when when Cana was talking about the this um, issue of uh, sexual identity and gender and and what's happening on that front and the model legislation that's put forth by the Family Research Council, I mean. I hear this a lot, and I think it's selective in terms of people saying, well, the Bible really doesn't speak to that issue of human sexuality. It doesn't really talk about it. I mean, God made them that way. Shouldn't they be free to, to be as they are? Right. With the issue of religious liberty, you know, this is something we've only really been talking about recently. I remember, you know, 1993 when RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, was passed. It passed unanimously in the House and 97 to 3 in the Senate. It used to not be a controversial issue, uh, but it's become a controversial issue because of this LGBT issue and trying to codify sexual orientation, gender identity as a protected class. And so, again, it's important. uh, So a lot of Christians say, well, religious liberty, I don't find that anywhere in the Bible. 
Well, you're right. Religious liberty, the, those words might not appear, but the principle is there in Scripture. And it's Christians who want a wide uh, pathway uh, for the gospel. We should be on the front lines advocating for religious liberty for all people. When and my, my wife teaches uh, uh, Sunday school for some teenage for teenage girls and you know the the messages that they're being inundated with in our public school system in the media is is counter to to scripture and and I think it's important that when we look at our public policy that number one we have a foundation for it and uh, there's plenty of social science research but. That social science research validates the truth, which is found in Scripture. And we talk about human sexuality. You know, Jesus affirmed what God did in Genesis in uh, Matthew 19 when he says, Have you not read from the beginning uh, that God created a male and female? You really, you can't step over those clear references to human sexuality in the scripture and be faithful to the scripture right you can't and you shouldn't and there's a book i've referenced on our show on your show before in the 1980s by richard newhouse famously titled the naked public square and he argues that it's you know it's only this was back in the 80s more so now that it's you know the message seems to be the only christians should when they enter the public square they need to check their religious beliefs at the front door and that's not true at all we should be able to enter the public square with our religious presuppositions, with God's word, and be able to make the case in the public square that God's word is what's most conducive for human flourishing. I mean, our worldview uh, is just as valid in terms of our right, I should say, as Christians to bring our worldview to the table of discussion for public policy as anybody else's. In America, everyone has the freedom uh, to believe or not to believe and to bring that belief to the, the public arena. And how we work things out is through consensus. doesn't mean that we always get our way, but through discussion, through dialogue, and historically through evidence and fact, we're able to arrive at a uh, an outcome that has positive implications for all of society. That is why I believe there's such an intense effort to silence is because those that are advocating this this other issue like gender you know this chaos that they're promoting there's no evidence to back that up and so what they want to do is silence those that would bring the social science those that would bring transcendent truth they just want to silence them Right, and it's completely unfair. It seems to be only Christians who come into the public square with a biblical worldview that are being told to sideline your beliefs. But it's not just, you know, religious beliefs. We do have facts on our side that we're advocating for in the public square on marriage and gender. And so just Christians who are listening need to take courage and realize we don't need to sideline our beliefs. Right. So we need to stand firm. We, we need to be informed on the issues. And that's why when we put forward, like Kena Gonzalez was talking about earlier, about the model legislation that we are providing to state legislators, it's based, it, it is found, the foundation is truth, transcendent truth, recognition that God created male and female. But we don't stop there. Uh, because good social science will validate the truth, and so we have the medical, we have uh, we have the social science to to back these things up, and so Christians, as we engage in this process, we need to be informed. Certainly, for us, we start with truth, transcendent truth, and then we build out from there. But we have to realize we operate in a culture that's biblically not only biblically illiterate, 
but in many cases in this arena that we're in, biblically hostile. They're hostile to biblical truth. That's right. And I've cited the statistic before. I think it's 7% of Americans have what's called a biblical worldview. So it's not that they just don't uh, misunderstand. It's not they don't understand our presuppositions. They, they really don't understand them. And they think that we're bringing a subversive right. worldview into the public square. And so Christians need to just continue to explain what we believe and why we believe it. And part of that is because how some people selectively quote the scripture to try to twist it. And I'm not talking about Christians. I'm talking about others who want to use it in a pejorative manner of being dismissive of Christians. So as Christians, we need to know what we believe and be able to defend it. And part of the biblical world series that you have been working on is to do just that. That's right. At least already we've done one on politics and political engagement, one on the life issue and one on religious liberty. I'm asking them. Those questions. What does the scripture say to these issues, and how has the church for 2,000 years understood these issues? And so just trying to help Christians and pastors think through these issues so they can speak prophetically and winsomely to all of these issues. And as Christians, the final word should be the word. Yes. Um, I mean, that's where we start and that's where we finish. And whether or not it's acceptable in the broader culture or not does not matter. We have to be faithful to the truth of God's word. Amen. David Clawson, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. And, folks, I would encourage you to check out David's work. Go to TonyPerkins.com, and you can uh, look at all of the resources in our Biblical Worldview series. I commend it highly to you. Uh, We need to be able to defend it. We need to know it first. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul, found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, prepared, and taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234.